בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים, we're back here. On our Sunday night, Jewish Hashkafa, which uh, Baruch Hashem has uh, certainly uh, helped us, helped many people out there get a better idea of what the Jewish ideology really is in uh, comparison to everything else that's out there. It's important for a person to know uh, what the truth looks like uh, before they determine to follow falsehood, and it's much easier then. Tonight's year will be for the Refuah Shlema, for uh, Rav Ephraim ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sara bat Anat, um, Rabbanit Levana bat Sara, Avimori David ben Nesriah, Imimorati Doris bat Jora, and all of Am Yisrael, all the righteous Noahides that continue to watch our lectures, support the organization with uh, everything they can, and Bezot uh, Hashem. Continue to grow what we're doing, Baruch Hashem. Just as a uh, reminder to everybody, tonight we uh, announced the um, location of the venue that will have the uh, uh, lecture, uh, the live lecture we're having here in South Florida on January 10th. It's going to be at the Bonaventure Resort. Uh, we've had several lectures uh, uh, over there in the past. Baruch Hashem, everybody enjoyed it over there, and we're looking forward, now that they've renovated the, uh, the whole place, we're looking forward to seeing what uh, developments they have, and I'm sure that everyone's going to enjoy. Uh, anyone that wants to uh, get rooms over there and things like that, you could just simply contact the uh, resort directly. Uh, I'm sure they'll be happy to accept your business. Uh, for those of you that live locally, you save yourself the resort uh, fees, but uh, certainly you don't uh, have to worry about fees from us because at the events, usually people walk around with uh, lots of blessings, lots of gifts, books, uh, USBs and a lot of goodies. Uh, Hashem. Uh, aside from that, tonight uh, it's the last day of the Gregorian calendar. Uh, so for tax purposes, anyone that uh, makes a uh, donation tonight will still be counted for the uh, year 2023. We need a lot of help for the uh, amazing things we have planned uh, for next year. So uh, those of you that uh, are able and willing uh, please donate on the uh, website, whether it's the uh, bhyeshiva.com campaign that we have or the regular website. Uh, we're looking to uh, raise quite a bit of money so we're able to uh, start a whole community here in uh, South Florida. Uh, and Be'ezot uh, Hashem, we're looking forward to success. Uh, aside from that, just as a reminder for you guys that uh, like uh, the, um, the merch of the organization, we have currently a 30% discount uh, for people that want to get stuff like this, like this cool cup that I just got uh, yesterday or the day before yesterday uh, in the mail. It's a Bezat Hashem cup. It's in metal. It's actually pretty uh, much better than I thought and uh, has to go to the mikveh, of course, for, uh, but nonetheless, uh, these uh, things are cool. And uh, if you want to get them, they're 30% off right now. The original price you'll see on YouTube is before the discount. Once you go to the store, you'll see on the, uh, the final cart, the prices go down by 30%. Uh, there's that, there's uh, sweatshirts, there's uh, all types of cool things that have Bezat Hashem on there and other uh, cool things. Uh, so we're ready to uh, get started, but of course, we have to also remind everyone that right now, today, uh, we start a new week, but we're also starting a new period uh, for the Jewish year for Am Yisrael, and really for the whole world, but especially Am Yisrael, which is the time of Shovavim. Uh, the time of Shovavim is the time where it's an auspicious time to do Tikkun Abrit. And I don't believe there's any organization that has done as much in this particular uh, avenue 
in uh, the English-speaking world uh, as our organization, whether it's the film Tikkun Abrit, uh, that has certainly helped countless people do tshuva, both Jews and Gentiles, uh, or the uh, hundreds of lectures that we've spoken about this topic, uh, the Tikkun Abrit, it's not just uh, stopping it, it's staying uh, away from uh, immorality altogether, whether it's immorality with self or immorality with other people, without getting the proper education, no filter in the world is going to help you. Uh, so uh, I know that there are some organizations that are promoting different filters or perhaps they're uh, promoting different types of things, but the reality is anyone that has uh, checked them out and then came to us saw that there's a world of difference. Uh, and one of the reasons why we haven't worked with any other organization uh, on this, even though they've asked us to, uh, is simply because our way of doing things is simply getting to the bottom line, uh, core teachings of the sages, and not uh, beating around the bush and uh, trying to uh, you know convince you into uh, you know uh, into stopping. It's uh, something that a person must be educated on to the point where they are disgusted by it. And the only way to do that is simply by knowing the truth about immorality altogether. Uh, and that's one of the things that, of course, the Satan fights against more than anything else. Now, one of the things that uh, the sages teach us about those people that fight against rabbis or fight against the specific teachings of the rabbis is that it's always connected to this, meaning... If you are immoral, you're going to have an impossible time uh, accepting the teachings of the sages, which has a lot to do with the topic tonight uh, that the Chazonish is discussing, which is expanding on the medical expertise and the knowledge of the sages, but actually bringing up something that is constantly disputed uh, by naysayers, by people that don't like to hear the sages, and one of the main reasons of why people go against the Torah is because their soul is impure. Their soul is uh, full of uh, things that, uh, full of spiritual damage they've caused themselves due to immorality. And one of the examples of this is what Shlomo Melech, King Solomon, says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 19. Translation, lust broken or lust overcome is sweet to the soul, but turning from evil, meaning doing tshuva, is an abomination to fools. So Rashi, 900 years ago, clarifies this and says, fools detest the very idea that they should give up their wickedness. In so many words, what Rashi is telling us here is that when somebody is spiritually stupid, we're not talking about fools like someone that doesn't know how to add one plus one. We're talking about people that are spiritually stupid, people that are so uh, connected to their immorality, whether it's immorality of a man, immorality of a woman, whether it's with himself or herself, with other people, promiscuity, all of these LGBTQ and other acronyms they add to themselves every week, all of these types of things create a spiritual stupidity unlike anything else. Unlike anything else, and what ends up happening is that these are the very same type of people that reject the teachings of the Torah and the sages more than anybody else. Why? As Rashi clarifies, they detest the idea. They hate it. They hate the fact that you're even telling them they need to change because that means that they're wrong. 
that means that their whole mentality, their whole ideology is wrong. That they have to control themselves is simply not something that they can comprehend or accept. And therefore they reject any type of teachings that will tell them they have to control themselves would tell them that they have to be, you know, honest with their spouse. They would tell them that they actually have to have a spouse, and so on and so forth. Now, the Gaon Mivilna, about 200 years ago, he interprets this slightly differently, where he says that um, this great feeling that the uh, that Shlomo Melech is first referring to, of how when you break a, uh, a uh, desire, and uh, it, feeling sweet to the soul, this is a, uh, this is how, this is specifically referring to conquering a lust. Conquering a lust, which ends up uh, feeling so good that he wants to continue. He wants to continue conquering it because he knows that there's nothing else that will give him this type of pleasure. And that's one of the things we learn from Pirkei Avot, the Mishnah Pirkei Avot, chapter 2, verse 4, nullify your will before his will, so his will will nullify the will of others before your will. Well, in essence, what the Gaomi Vilna is trying to teach us here is that if you nullify your will to fulfill every lust that you possibly want, and because you realize that God forbid it, you realize that whether it's wasting seed or the other examples I've already given multiple times, uh, you realize that it's not good for you. We're not talking about it's not good for you just uh, uh, physically. We're talking about it's not good for you spiritually. We're not just talking about it's not good for you spiritually. It's also not good for you physically. Anyone that has watched the uh, lectures that we have about this topic knows full well that there is literally endless amount of proofs that we've brought over the years to, uh, to show both of these cases. But what ends up happening is, is that if a person thinks that they can beat it one time and, uh, and, and, and just overcome the desire, they have to simply, they don't have to worry about it ever again. This is a mistake. And unfortunately, what ends up happening at times is that, and unfortunately, this is an example that uh, is, is a painful example, but nonetheless, a real life example that uh, just happened a few days ago where uh, there was a, uh, somebody that used to come to my lectures here in Florida, years ago, maybe seven years ago, something like that. And this guy was struggling with everything, whether it was with money, finding a zivug. Uh, in so many words, his religiosity was upside down. And he grew up in a relatively from house, relatively religious house. And Baruch Hashem, once he came to my lectures and he realized how, uh, you know, he has to... Uh, protect his breed and, uh, and make sure that he has to fix himself and, and, and not go and fall for this Yetzirah anymore. And Baruch Hashem, after listening to my lectures and, uh, and, and really taking them to heart, this guy turned his entire life around. He got married. Uh, I believe he had a, uh, a kid or more uh, than one kid. And everything went great. Now, I haven't heard from him in uh, several years. And the only thing that I heard is that uh, his father has uh, some really nasty things to say about me and has, uh, has actually tried to badmouth me uh, to several people. But I never said anything to the guy. I'm not, uh, you know, it's not uh, for me to do. But I was hoping, I was always hoping in the back of my mind that the young guy is still doing well. All I knew about him is that he got married, Baruch Hashem, that he had a kid, uh, at least one that I know of. 
and everything was going well. Well, this young guy sends me a message just this past Friday, and uh, after apparently seeing one of the uh, short clips that was publicized last week about how I talk about, I bring one of the teachings of the sages about how Gehenom is that the fire of Gehenom never comes out, and uh, in so many words, it's a one-minute clip that gives people a boost to do tshuva and to really uh, check themselves, regardless of whether they're religious or not religious, but to really check themselves because there is a judge, there is a uh, sentence at the end for all of us. Well, this guy says to me, you know, I haven't heard from this guy in probably five years. You know that there is, uh, you try to teach people uh, by, uh, to do tshuva by, uh, by scaring them. You know that there are other ways. So this chutzpan, ungrateful person, gives me a, uh, you know, he gives me musar. What's his musar? His musar that apparently uh, the teachings of the sages that we say are not good. So what was the response? Response is, I sent him the uh, more recent video that we had of the organization's uh, uh, um, uh, plan, the BH Yeshiva uh, campaign that we have, which talks about all of the amazing things that the organization has already done, which is feed over 160,000 people, give out 150 or more than 154,000 books for free, a million and a half USBs and CDs, and have kolels, yeshivot, G'dolei Adora behind us, Baruch Hashem, and there are literally dozens of them that have made videos for us and letters, all types of wonderful things that obviously have happened to the organization over the, uh, these last several years. I said, this is what I do. This is what I do. And uh, in order to save the Olam Abba of people just like you, like I did save your Olam Abba, before you became a kfuy tova, before you became ungrateful. And apparently even your father doesn't know what you've learned from our lectures. Because if he did, obviously, his opinion would be very different. Because he didn't know that his son was in uh, such shambles, spiritually speaking. That was the response, and I have yet to receive a response back. Apparently he swallowed his tongue. He doesn't have anything else to say. Now, the truth is, Abutai, I know without a shadow of a doubt, without going into anyone's bedroom, without even asking any questions, that the only reason why this nasty comment, ungrateful comment came out is simply because the same problem that he had seven years ago came back like a disease that doesn't have a permanent cure. Because this is the attitude, this is the recurring attitude of people that waste seed, that are immoral, that do these types of things. They literally start rejecting the truth because they know it's true, but it requires them to change. Now, rejecting the sages, having nasty things to say about Talmidei Chachamim is not exactly the best idea. Let's just say it uh, uh, that way. But the Chazonish has brought us some interesting bits of information in the last couple of lectures about the scientific and medical knowledge of the sages and how, in some cases, it was actually superior to what we have today. Now, of course, there's always going to be somebody out there 
that says, yeah, but you know, over here, the, the sages said this, and it's wrong, and, and then, of course, they build on that bandwagon as if they just found the Eiffel Tower or they found America all over again and say, oh, this is wrong, so therefore everything is wrong. So we're actually going to address one of those. And that's actually in the name of the Chazonish, and he brings us some things that perhaps you're going to have a hard time proving scientifically. But we brought the science to Baruch Hashem. So in this chapter, in section 4 now we're starting, the Chazonish continues to build on what we already talked about, about all of these medical and scientific knowledge that the sages had, and then he brings something that is often disputed, both in the world of Torah as well as, as, well as in the world of science. And he says as follows, he brings the Ramban's commentary, the Ramban, Nachmanides, lived approximately 700 uh, years ago or so, 750 years ago, uh, he was uh, born when, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Rambam was uh, uh, passed away, left this world when the Ramban was about six years old. So it gives you a, uh, a, a little bit of a gauge as far as time is concerned. So uh, Maimonides passed away when the Ramban, uh, when Nechmanides was about six years old or so, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. The Ramban was... Similar to the Rambam, uh, a Renaissance man, a expert in philosophy, in Torah, in uh, you know, in the Talmud, in the commentary on the uh, on the Torah, in halacha, in medicine, in science. Literally, he knew it all. Of course, we are. Uh, we have a series, ongoing series of uh, Jewish intimacy, which Bezrat Hashem, we're going to get back to uh, this uh, Tuesday night. Uh, and uh, he knew everything. In so many words, everything. And I don't think there's anybody out there that wrote as much uh, and covered the entire spectrum of Torah as the Ramban did. And the Chazonish brings the Ramban's commentary on the book of Numbers, Bamidbal, chapter 21, verse 9. And he says, the Ramban in his commentary on Bamidba 21.9 says that it's known in the ways of medicine that it is dangerous for anyone bitten by any poisonous animal to look at that animal or at a picture of this animal to the point that the people bitten by a rabid dog or rabid animals, if they look into water, they will see the image of the dog or other injurious animals and will die. As it says in the Sefer Arefuot, which is the book of medicines, and is mentioned in the Gemara, in the Talmud, in Masechet Yoma, page 84a. Here, the Chazonish is bringing something that was mentioned 750 years ago, regarding rabies of somewhat of a extraordinary discovery where a person that was bitten by a rabies dog or other types of animal is going to have what they call hydrophobia, fear of water. 
this is actually what was originally thought about, you know, people that got bitten by dogs or other animals that uh, had rabies, that it was, it was just, uh, they thought it was a different condition. And then later on, they realized it's not uh, hydrophobia by itself. This is something that is connected to some type of uh, uh, rabies. But uh, he gives a reason for it, though. This is the first part of them having hydrophobia, that's a known, proven, scientific fact. There's even videos that you can see of people, unfortunately, that were bitten by a dog or some type of animal, uh, that uh, how they go into you know, all types of convulsions and, and have an uh, uncontrollable fear of water. But the Ramban is saying here that it's part of the reason is because when they look at the water, they see the animal. You're not going to see it, but they see the animal that bit them, which creates uncontrollable fear. Now, this is obviously not something that you can prove scientifically because you can't see what somebody else sees. And he says, and he brings a source, which is mentioned in Sefer Refuot. As a side note, this is also mentioned by Rabbeinu Bechaye, also commentary in Sefer Bamidba 21.9 who preceded the Ramban. Uh, and uh, he also brings the Gemara, the Talmud, in Masechet Yoma. And then he says, doctors are also careful not to mention the name of the biting animal so that the bitten people won't think of it, for their souls will cleave to that thought and it will stay with them until it kills them. And we know something, and this is the part that is the most difficult for anyone out there to understand, where it says, and we know something tried and true from the wonders of creation, that if you take the urine of someone bitten by a rabid dog, when he is already insane from the disease, and put this urine into a glass vessel, one will be able to see the image of little puppies. If the water is strained through a piece of cloth, they will disappear completely. But when you return them to the glass vessel and they stay there for about an hour, you will once again see those puppies. And this is the truth of the wonders of the powers of the soul. This part, this last part, first part is indisputable. Why? People that have rabies or got rabies before they died, it's been documented, photographed for centuries that uh, this causes hydrophobia, causes them to have major fear of water, whether it's because they see the animal or not. Obviously, science can't prove that or hasn't at least. But the second part, which is that the urine creates certain images of of dogs uh, or the other animals, this is something obviously that is, I haven't, haven't, you know, you don't see this every day. You don't see people getting rabies anymore, uh, at least not often, even though uh, there was a recent paper that I uh, saw said that uh, almost 60,000 people die of rabies each year around the world. Uh, which seems like a lot, but it's really nothing in comparison to uh, 8 billion people in the world. 
People always forget that there are literally hundreds of thousands of people that die every single day. Uh, so to say that this is something that's tried and true, meaning that this is something easily provable, has gotten the people that are in this field or people that simply hate the sages, you know, to lose their mind and of course celebrate that they found something that, hey, I don't see anything. I don't see anybody write about this. What is he talking about? He doesn't know what he's talking about and so on and so forth. So first, we're going to have to see where it talks about in the Gemara. In the Gemara, because before we reject what the sages say, let's just see what the Gemara actually does say. In the Gemara in Masechet Yoma, in page 84a, and it continues into 84b, it says as follows. One who is seized with jaundice, we feed him donkey meat. One who was bitten by a mad dog, this is someone that has, uh, a dog that has rabies, it's called a mad dog, we feed him from its liver lobe. And one who feels pain in his mouth, we put medicine in his mouth for him on Shabbat. Meaning someone has a toothache of some kind or has some type of issues in his uh, mouth. These are the words of Rabbi Matya ben, ben Kharash. But the Chachamim say, the sages say, these have no therapeutic value. And when the sages say that it has no therapeutic value, what are they actually excluding? Are they excluding one of them? Are they excluding all of them? Are they excluding the last one? Which one are they excluding? And it's a debate among the sages. Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Point being is, we see here that the opinion of Rabbi Matya ben Kharaj is not universally accepted. It's not universally accepted. It's not something that uh, everyone says, okay, you know what? This is what we got on Mount Sinai. This is the truth. And that's it. But one thing we do see is that the Gemara is giving a cure for rabies. It also gives cure for something else. Now in other parts of the Torah, just as a side note, there is a uh, teachings that a baby that has jaundice, this I believe is in a midrash, uh, either a midrash or the Zohar, a baby that has jaundice, uh, usually kids, uh, babies that are born have jaundice, which is very, uh, uh, um, very big issue because you have to have the brit milah only if the baby is healthy. So there has to be a low level of uh, jaundice, uh, you know, in order for you to actually have the, uh, the Brit Milah. You can't have the Brit Milah on the eighth day, no matter what. If the baby has a uh, level, I believe, of uh, 14, 15 or more, then you can't have the, uh, the Brit Milah, and this causes delay. But someone that wants to cure it, but uh, of course a baby cannot eat donkey meat, nor is it something that uh, is uh, utilized today, there are other solutions. Uh, one of them is to uh, take a dove. Take a dove, 
uh, and uh, put it on the uh, on the baby. Another one that I saw somewhere is to put a uh, the baby's feet into a bowl of water of some kind with a goldfish, and let the feet of the baby be in there, swim in the in the water until the goldfish touches the baby, and that should improve the situation. Now I saw this with my own eyes working. And miraculously, the, the fish dies on the spot. Now, of course, this was somebody else did it. But recently, I had a student that Baruch Hashem had a, uh, had a baby. And, of course, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted us to see the words of the sages come true. And uh, the baby had jaundice, a very high level of jaundice, which actually was even dangerous. And I told them that uh, they can do this. They did it. And Baruch Hashem... The jaundice dropped significantly to the point where they're able to do the Brit Milah. Now, again, a person that's looking at it from the medical perspective, this seems ridiculous. What does the goldfish have to do with jaundice? And how do you transfer jaundice from the kid, the baby, to a fish or to a dove? All of these things. So already we see that sometimes the words of the sages regarding medicine it's not because it's medicine scientifically but rather skula skula like something miraculous that is in essence the secrets of the creation where they have obviously learned it somewhere from the torah from the sages and sometimes even learned it from the nations so these types of things you don't have to if it's the words of the Torah, of course you have to follow it. If it's the words that they uh, learned from uh, other experts in the field in medicine or science or anything like that, you don't have to uh, believe it. You don't have to agree with it. As you can see, the sages here are rejecting what uh, Rabbi Matya is saying as far as it's not medicine. It's something sgula. Now, they're not specifying if they're referring to the entire list of cures that he gave or just some of them, it's a debate. But nonetheless, this would explain why other sages have said similar things. For example, the Rambam. The Rambam did not accept the, uh, what Rabbi Matya said as actual medicine, but rather as skula, meaning he included that in the list. He included that in the list. Now, if somebody looks for this type of uh, uh, information about what the Ramban said, what the Ramban said about seeing the dogs in the water, uh, the images of a dog in the water, um, they may find some things, but they're not going to find much. One of the things that we found is that there is a non-Jew, to my knowledge, he's not Jewish, by the name of Paulos Aigineta who lived about 1,400 years ago, meaning he preceded the Ramban by about 700 years, who writes the same thing. Who writes the same thing. And this is a non-Jew. So we see here that this is not some uh, invention out of thin air. This is something that apparently was documented. Perhaps it's not the number one topic of discussion at every, uh, every table among the world, but nonetheless, somebody else also did mention it. Further, 
when we look at some of the major discoveries in this world of, 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 of cures, immunizations, and so on, if you simply type immunization as far as history, within the first one or two names that you'll find is the most famous, which is uh, uh, Dr. Louis Pasteur, or Professor Pasteur. Why? Because he is, in essence, the forefather of modern immunization, even though he's known for the pasteur after his name for pasteurizing the milk, which is, in essence, the things that we use today for, for milk and cheese and so on. In the bigger uh, things that uh, uh, he contributed aside from that is that he actually came up with the first uh, vaccine for rabies. Until the year 1885, according to the Gregorian calendar, so approximately 140 years ago, everyone that was, almost everyone that was exposed that had rabies died. Almost everyone. The Gemara has an example of somebody that followed the advice of the sages and survived. It also has an example of somebody that died. So it has both. It's a, obviously the Talmud is uh, unbiased. Tells you both the good and the bad, just like the rest of the Torah. But nonetheless, there is a survivor. But in the world, there wasn't any uh, uh, cure available until Louis Pasteur came up in 1885. In fact, he did something that was very controversial at the time, which he actually uh, did a... uh, He tried this on a uh, human being. Who was the first... A human being, a kid by nine-year-old kid by the name of Joseph Mistels, who apparently was a Jew, um, who apparently was a Jew that was a young kid that was uh, uh, bitten and attacked by a dog, and got rabies, and he actually took this vaccine and survived. He lived until the age of sixty-four, where he actually killed himself. After the Nazis, Imach Shimon Bezicham, invaded Paris, where he knew that uh, they will kill him and his family, hence the reason why, aside from the name, uh, we, uh, it's, I think it's safe to assume that uh, Joseph Meisters was a Jew. Because there was no one that the uh, Nazis targeted more than the Jews. But the point is, is that Louis Pasteur, in essence, brought a vaccine that revolutionized the world. You went from 100% fatality to we have something to do about it. Now, of course, this has been developed over the last 140 years, but what he did was even more interesting. What he did is that, in essence, he used the original the tissue of the dogs themselves in order to develop the antibodies, apparently, in order to make this vaccine, something that is still utilized to a certain extent today by some vaccines, not all. Today, they mostly use other things for, uh, uh, for this particular vaccine. But he revolutionized the world of medicine with this, not only with this uh, uh, vaccine, but with this process altogether. 
the fact that he actually practiced it on a kid without having the licenses almost got him to go to jail. But after the kid was cured, I believe it was about uh, several days later or 13 days later, everyone you know, dropped the charges and celebrated him and pretty much he became the superhero of the world. Now, if you remember just a few moments ago, what Louis Pasteur did sounds like what the Talmud said and what the Mishnah said in Masechet Yoma, not only in the Gemara Masechet Yoma, page 84, but also the Mishnah in Masechet Yoma in chapter 8, Mishnah number 6, where it says, if one is bit by a mad dog, they feed him the lobe of its liver. And Rabbi Matya ben Harash permits it. Even if it's on Shabbat. In so many words, the Mishnah already said, use the tissue of the rabid animal in order to cure the person that has rabies. Now, as I said again, the Rambam, Maimonides, rejects this as medicine, but rather as something skula. Either way, we see that the medical discovery from 140 years ago was no discovery, but rather something that already existed. Can it be that Louis Pasteur read the Talmud? What do you guys think? Well, I'll save you the thought. You guys think for yourself for a moment until I give you the answer. I found an answer from a Talmud Chacham wrote on Or Sameach, the website Or Sameach, the following. One of the greatest scientific discoveries which have saved the lives of millions throughout the world was the work of Dr. Louis Pasteur. Pasteur's discovery deals with a method to cure diseases by the effective use of the same bacteria that causes them. As is known, he began his experimental research with an effort to cure rabies with other and other diseases. His successful endeavors surpassed his wildest hopes and Pasteur continued to apply his method to other ailments. Till today, pa- Dr. Pasteur's discovery serves as a central basis for all types of immunizations. It is also appropriate to mention the homeopathic approach to the cure of the disease, which attempts to cure ailments by using material similar to those that cause them. The homeopathic method is gradually gaining popularity in the Western world. In Pasteur's generation, there appeared a Hebrew book called Mevosharim, the entry to the gates, which quoted reliable witnesses who heard from Dr. Pasteur's close friend, Rabbi Dr. Israel Michel Rabinowitz, that Dr. Pasteur discovered the basis for his revolutionary research in the Talmud. Dr. Pasteur discovered his basis for his revolutionary research where? In our Talmud, written nearly 1,700 years ago. How did this happen? It all began when Rabbi Dr. Rabinovich, then living in Paris, began to translate the Talmud into French. His translation of the tractates 
of the Moed, the, the, uh, the, the section of Moed of the Talmud, reached Dr. Pasteur and aroused his curiosity. To his amazement, Pasteur discovered a surprising statement in the tractate Yoma, page 84, saying, if someone was bitten by a mad dog, meaning affected with rabies, one should feed him the lobe of that dog's liver. The curious doctor immediately launched a series of experiments whose results continue to save millions of lives to this day. Indeed, probe the Torah over and over, afochba ve'afochba dekulaba, as the Mishnah in Masechet Avot, chapter 5, verse Mishnah number 22 says, that delve into it and delve into it because everything is in it. Examine the Torah as deeply as possible for you will find everything that you need in there. Here we see Rabotai Yekarim documented proof that apparently it's not just a sgula. What the sages said nearly 2,000 years ago actually has a medicinal scientific ground and foundation that's not only it works but it's actually utilized till this day to cure millions of people now as far as the second part of seeing the dogs in the urine of the uh, of the person that i have not found any uh, evidence of but already we see that after hearing the last couple of lectures and hearing what we found here, it's already more than enough to show that the sages didn't just write something just to fill up some more paper, just to say something that sounds clever because they were the biggest skeptics themselves and therefore, they constantly refuted each other and debated each other until the truth was indisputable. Until the truth was something as clear as day. And therefore, anytime you see when someone is rejecting the words of the sages in such a nonchalant way, in such a disrespectful way, you should know that this person is spiritually sick and you should pray for them you should in so many words hope that they haven't passed the uh the line where there's uh, where they can't uh, there's a point of no return because such a person is bringing upon themselves disaster upon disaster now one of the other examples that we see in the Holy Torah that has to do with our subject at hand, that of course is constantly a, uh, an issue for people, is when we talk about the issues of modesty. Even from women will sometimes send me a message asking the basics of tzniut because they saw somebody else, maybe even the rabbi's wife, Maybe somebody that's really from, maybe even some rabbinite that's giving lectures, 
and they saw her wearing something that until now they didn't think it was sniut. They didn't think the color was sniut, was, was, was modest. They didn't think that the, uh, you know, the, the wig that's longer than the exile was modest. They didn't think that. But apparently if they're doing it, they're religious. So, I mean, this, it's okay, right, Rabbi? No, it's not okay. Just because somebody's sinning doesn't make it a mitzvah. Doesn't make it allowed. One of the examples that we can see of where these things go and how the sages treat it is we look at the blessings in last week's parashat, parashat Vayichi. The blessings that Yaakov gave to Yehuda. Most of the Jews in this generation are from Shevet Yehuda. The Mashiach also comes from Shevet Yehuda. This does not mean that you are the Mashiach, but nonetheless, it is something that uh, is a fact. Now, in the words of this blessing, there are endless prophecies and lessons to be learned, but this was a chidush that I had some time ago that, it's, again, it's built on what the sages already say. I didn't rediscover the wheel here. First and foremost, we see that the blessing to each brother has specifically to do with things that happen in their life. And when it comes to Yehuda, Yaakov tells them that the reason why he went from being a guru Aryeh to Aryeh, he went from being a, uh, a lion cub to being a lion is because of the prey. What is his prey? This is mentioning, in essence, how Tamar, Tamar, his wife, before she became his wife, was suspected of immorality and he was going to burn her because he was he's the king but when he found out that really it was his kid instead of denying it because no one else other than Akadosh Balchu and Tamar knew he could have easily denied it burned her and saved his uh, face but what did he do he admitted Sadkamimani she's more righteous than me I'm the father of those kids. In so many words, public embarrassment. But for the sake of truth, instead of the having this prey burned, you actually made her into an honorable woman and to your wife. Despite your embarrassment, despite the shame, despite everything else, that is what made you from being a guayet to an ariet, to a, from a, uh, a, a lion cub into a lion. That's why Am Israel until this day called themselves Yehudim, Yehudim after Yehuda. This has to do both with Yehuda, the name, but also because uh, to Hodeh, which is to 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 be uh, uh, to admit. I'm sorry to uh, to thank and Mode, which is to uh, admit. All comes from the name Yehuda. Furthermore, we see that Yaakov continues in his blessings, and he says that the Mashiach will come from Shevet Yehuda. He says, in chapter 49, verse number 
10 and 11. One who exercises dominion shall not depart from the house of Yehuda, nor a Torah scholar from among his descendants forever until Mashiach to whom kingship belongs shall arrive. Meaning no one will be a king other than the tribe of Yehuda until the Mashiach comes from them. And to him nations will comply. He will bring Israel to encircle its city and the people will build his sanctuary, meaning build the Bet Mikdash. The righteous will be all around him and those who fulfill the Torah will engage in study with him. His garments will be of fine purple cloth. His clothing of finest cloth dyed in red and all types of colors. See, so here we see that the Mashiach will actually wear purple. But also have some other colors. Now, what can we possibly learn from this? In the Hebrew language, the verse says, Ubedam anavim suto. Ubedam anavim suto is that in the, uh, the uh, color of the blood of grapes is what his garment is going to be, meaning purple. Suto, the Nefesh Agel, the Nefesh Agel comments on it and says, this Suto also comes from the root of the word Asata, which is enticement, where colored garments are called this because a woman who wears them thereby entices men to look at her. Meaning a woman that wears colorful clothes entices men to look at her. So from there we learn suto, colorful clothes, or asata, which is enticement. And then what happens to a woman that's married that wears these colorful clothes? The Gemara in Masechet Sota says she becomes a Sota. So a Soto, a Sata, Sota. All same root. Colorful clothes cause enticement and thereby eventually make the woman into a wayward woman, a Sota. So here we see Rabotai Yekarim. If you are the Mashiach or even if you're just simply a Jew, but you're a man, you want to wear purple, no problem. But if you're a woman and you want to start putting on all types of colors, you have to make sure that those colors are not enticing people to look at you. It's not just one color like some people think, oh, it's just red. Because sometimes... The red itself may even be more modest than the other things that you're wearing because of either the shapes and the sizes and the different things that are on the dress. The most clear instructions as far as modesty that we have from the sages is make sure they're not enticing anybody else to look at you like you're a traffic light. You're allowed to be attractive, but not attracting. 
Why? If you're attracting, you're enticing, don't be surprised if you also become a sota. Now, of course, they're going to say, yeah, but this is your interpretation. Not really. This is the Nefesh Agel. This is the Torah. But let's, of course, add one more little tidbit from the Gemara. If you're wearing something or you want to buy something that is enticing, that is attracting, then usually you're very, very interested to know what everyone thinks of it. Your girlfriends, your other friends, everyone. What does the sages say about that? Gemara, Masechet Psachim, page 26b. Says, displaying a garment in front of guests is as if he burns it. How so? Because he either, he exposes the garment to an evil eye of the guests, or because he brings the attention of the thieves who might be among the guests. In so many words, they're talking about here a man. Say, if you have a brand new suit, a brand new something, and you show it off to all your friends, hey, look at this suit that I got. Isn't it cool? It's cost me $5,000. It cost me $3,000. Say, no, this is a really bad idea. Why? Either... You're putting yourself at risk where someone's going to steal it from you. Or they're simply going to destroy your life even worse. Why? They're going to put Ainara on you. Why? What's Ainara? What's evil eye? Evil eye is a mystical phenomenon. Where the Gemara in Maseret Bava Metziah in page 84a talks about it extensively. And also Brachot and several other places. Where someone looks at something that you have with envy. And thereby increases the likelihood that tragedy will come. Harm will come from that thing. So by you showing off your new suit, you're actually either jeopardizing losing it, or even worse, jeopardizing losing even more than that. Now if this applies to a man where modesty is not as stringent as it is for women, then of course... Common sense that a woman that shows off her dress, her whatever outfit that she has, is not only bringing a possibility of losing it, where all of a sudden she can't find this brand new $3,000 dress. Right after her friends left from the party, the dress left with it, but, or the jewelry, or whatever it is she's showing off, but you bring upon yourself Ainara. You bring upon yourself so much so that the sages say showing off your stuff, being enticing is like burning the stuff that you're showing people. So here we see, again, multiple examples and we could build on this for 500 years. There's no end to the amount of lessons the sages teach us to warning us from not doing the things that are harmful to us. But what can we do about those people that say, no, come on, this is uh, too much. I want to dress the way I want to dress. I want to look the way I want to look. I want to be the way I want to be. Well, then you have to decide. 
are the sages right and you're wrong? Or are they wrong and you're right? Which in so many words means you are a heretic and you have no share of the world to come. And in so many words, you're signing yourself off as a person that's going to attend Gainum for a long time. It's only one of those two options. Either they're right and you're wrong, or they're wrong and you're right. But to say they're wrong is a problem. Why? Because you're saying the sages are wrong. You're not allowed to say the sages are wrong. Why? Because they dedicated their entire life to the Torah. And to say that they're wrong is wrong. Now, if you're going to say, no, but maybe they're not right about everything because surely we found some medical things that uh, they said or science that they said that wasn't proven. I just give you an example of how that's not necessarily always the case if you really look at things. And number two, even if they brought science or medical things that are no longer applicable or haven't been proven, it doesn't necessarily negate all of the other things that they said about the Torah being 100% true. One of the most powerful books that has to do with teaching about Midot, the section about anger, I've mentioned to you guys already several times over the years about it. This is a book that's read on a regular basis by many of Gdolei Israel, where there was the Stipler Gaon, Rav Ovadia, Many, many Chachmei Israel have uh, said this book is a must. It's a book that's called Gnuta Kaas on Shove Efsedo. Or actually, I'm sorry, the Aser Kaas Milibcha. It's a remove anger from your heart is the name of the book. But this is a section over here that's... Uh, the chapter it's called anger it's depravity the punishment and the loss in section 110 he says as follows an angry person might despise and hate torah scholars if they say or do something he disagrees with or they rebuke him or make halachic rulings he's not accustomed to or follow different customs than those he's familiar with Such a person that despises the Torah scholars, we're not even talking about says bad things about them, simply hates them, disagrees with them. No, such a person transgresses the mitzvah that's mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10, which is fear Hashem your Lord, which includes the obligation to respect Torah scholars. And the Rambam in Ilchot Talmud Torah, chapter 6, Alakha number 11, teaches that showing disrespect to sages or hating them is a terrible sin. Jerusalem was destroyed because of this sin, as it says, and they were humiliating the angels of Hashem and degrading their words and fighting the prophets. They were degrading those who teach Torah, a person who degrades sages, does not have a portion of the world to come and he's included in the category of he has degraded the word of Hashem 
And as it says in the Shulchan Aruch, in Siman 243, a person who degrades a Torah scholar, even when not in his presence, is in a state of excommunication until he asks the scholar for forgiveness. Meaning, you make fun of a Torah scholar, you say they're stupid, they don't know what they're talking about, they're crazy, they're fanatic, whatever you say that's degrading about a Torah scholar, automatically, in the Beddin of Heaven, you're on cherem. You're on cherem. And this lasts until you go and ask an apology. And the apology is accepted. Can't just apologize, send a text mail. Hey, Rabbi, listen, I said some really bad stuff to you, to a few of my friends. You forgive me, right? Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. If he doesn't forgive you 100%, you have a very serious problem. Why? If you are in cherem over here, it's literally worse than a death penalty. According to the teachings of our sages. Furthermore, says the... Uh, the sage over here a person who degrades Torah scholars is within the category of heretics who will descend to Gehenom and be judged there forever as the Gemara in Masechet Rosh Hashanah page 17a says about such people it says in the prophet Yeshaya Isaiah chapter 66 and he quotes it and you will go out and see the corpses of those individuals who sinned against me. For their rot will never die, and their fire will not go out, and they will be the source of disparagement for all of mankind. End of quote. The punishment for, those, for such people is worse than that that's allotted to people who sin with their bodies, like people that don't put on tefillin. The latter is in Gehenom for 12 months. Whereas one who degrades the Torah scholars is in Gehenom forever. Such a person also suffers in this world. It says about Torah scholars, Be careful with their coal, that you should not be singed, for their bite is the bite of a fox, their sting is the sting of a scorpion, their hiss is the hiss of a viper, and all their words are burning coals. This is in the chapter 2 and the Yalkut Melachim Melech, 1 in letter 201 says Hashem cares about the honor of the Tzadikim more than he cares about his own honor and by looking into the Talmud the Midrash and Jewish history it's clear that Hashem demands the honor of Torah scholars and leaders of the Jewish nation and those who degrade them will not escape harm Torah scholars who offend other scholars will also suffer. It's risky to degrade even a tzaddik who is not wise and a wise man who isn't a tzaddik as the Zohar Kedosh says in Parashat Vayishlach. And the main attribute of all of this is the attribute of anger. Here we see that Arab Reichman, Rav Zev Reichman, brings many sources that, in essence, complete the puzzle for us. Whether it's worth it to reject the words of the sages, 
whether it's in the medicinal statements they made, scientific statements, halachic statements, ashkafa statements, in so many words, anything they said. They're going to say, wait, don't, isn't everything open for discussion? Yes, but not your type of discussion. Meaning, you're allowed to discuss it based on the laws of the Torah, based on the words of the sages, based on the proper askafa, based on the rules, not based on opinions, like your opinion and your boy's opinion and your girlfriend's opinion and some heretic's opinion. And No, no, no. It's based on what did the sages say about this? And even if you find something that is proven wrong, let's say you do, still you have to treat it with respect the same way that the sages treated each other with respect when they disputed each other. Meaning, he poskins that ABC is allowed according to these rules, according to these proofs. A different Chacham paskins, it's not allowed, according to these rules, according to these proofs. When they debate each other, they're debating each other, number one, according to the rules, and number two, with utmost respect, even if they're using harsh words, they're not using harsh words to personally insult each other. They're not using harsh words like uh, uh, in order to degrade each other. They're in essence defending the honor of the Torah. But just like Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel, still, as much as they fought each other and debated over the Torah, they still married each other's kids to each other. Why? Because they loved each other. And all of it was for the honor of the Torah. Now there are some debates that over the years that like for example people mentioned the one from the Abionatan uh, um, Ibishits and the uh, um, the Yavits. But remember, if you don't know the whole idea, the whole history of it, don't just conclude that they hated each other. Abionatan Ibishits never responded to the Yavits. And in fact, as harsh as the words as the Yavit said against Rabbi Yonatan Abishitz, Rabbi Yonatan Abishitz never responded and treated him with the utmost respect. And the Yavit says so. The Yavit himself says so. So you know that I'm fighting for the sake of truth. This is, this is not for my benefit because this Chacham actually respects me, gives me extraordinary respect. But he's still going against them. Why? Because he thought that he was actually an imposter that was, uh, in essence, that one of the Talmidim of the, uh, the Rasha, Shabtai Tzvi Machshimo. So it wasn't because he had any personal issues with him, but rather because of a belief that he saw in a Kamea that it was the same things that they, uh, uh, was used by uh, a major Rasha. Point being is, anytime you see the sages disputing each other, you're generally going to see a lot of respect, a lot of honor, a lot of, uh, you know, a awe of each other. Even if they dispute. And this is coming from sages. Needless to say, from 
people, when people dispute the sages, when people dispute Chachamim, it's not only terrible, it usually leads to things that are even more awful, where they start degrading them, they start mocking them. And the Gemara says in multiple places, in Masechet Shabbat and several other places aside from it, also Masechet Sanhedrin, anyone that degrades a Talmit Chacham, en trufa lemakato, there is no cure for his ailment. Meaning, when a Kadosh Baruch Hu eventually decides to hit this person, to punish them, there's no cure for their ailment. It's that horrible. So, the whole point is to see that we have ourselves certain things in a Torah that are as clear as day. Allowed, not allowed, this happened, that happened, no problem. But then the more Torah you learn, the more the Yetzirah is going to try to attack you from different corners and tell you, hey, how could this be? This doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's not applicable. Maybe this, maybe that. Tread carefully. Be very careful. Before you start saying, ah, it's nonsense. Why? Saying such a statement can put you in trouble. This is part of Yirat Shemaim. This is part of having all of the Almighty. Now, of course, a person say, ah, no, come on, God is all loving. He is all loving. But your expression of love and his expression of love are very different. As the Navi says, in the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. Many times people read this week's parasha in Sefer Shmot, Parashat Shmot, and they see how HaKadosh Baruch Hu unveiled himself to Moshe Rabbeinu. First, there was a burning bush that was not being consumed. Then he sees an angel. Then, in essence, he sees whatever image God wanted to show him. And the sages explain that because this was Moshe Rabbeinu's first prophecy, Hashem couldn't just come to him one shot. He died. So he had to do it in small increments. First, a bush does not consume. He sees a fire. Then an angel. Then in essence, he sees some type of image that a Kadosh Baruch Hu wanted to show him. So people see this like, oh, I want to see God. Do you know the difference between you and a monkey is smaller than the difference between any of us and Moshe Rabbeinu. So people say, how come God doesn't show himself to me? You're not Moshe Rabbeinu. And guess what? Guess what? Even Moshe Rabbeinu almost got killed in this week's parasha when he didn't do everything that Hashem said precisely like the Brit Milah for his son. Sometimes when HaKadosh Baruch Hu shows himself, it's not necessarily a burning bush. Sometimes it's cancer. Sometimes it's bankruptcy. Sometimes it's other crises that happen in your life. Don't ask to see Hashem if you don't know what it means. Most importantly, understand that a Kadosh Baruch Hu's expression of mercy and love is not like what you think. And that's why in the Gemara, in Masechet Ktubot, page 111, in the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, He says to us, in the Song of Songs, I adjure you, O daughters of Yerushalayim, by the gazelles and by the hens of the field. 
Rabbi Elazar says, the Holy One, blessed be He, said to the Jewish people, if you fulfill the oath, it's good. And if not, I will permit your flesh and all will devour you like the gazelles and the hinds of the field. In so many words, what HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us, you see that verse looks innocent, looks like Shlomo Melech is singing about nature. No, it's not nature. It's a message from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, where he tells us, you see that Torah that I gave you? Don't treat it lightly. Why? If you follow it, good. Good for you. You'll get blessings, plenty of blessings. You'll get eternity. But if not, I'm going to feed you to all of the nations. Just like the gazelle is fed to all the lions, all the hyenas, all the animals that chase after it and catch it. You ever see a lion eat a gazelle? You ever see one of these ferocious animals rip apart its throat? Next time you see it, imagine a sinner. That's what's going to happen to them. Now that sinner may have well be someone that keeps Shabbat. May as well be someone that eats kosher. But when the rabbi said something like, you have to be careful with your eyes and don't look at immorality. Don't listen to dirty music. Don't look at dirty uh, magazines. Don't act against the Torah. And he says, no, come on, this rabbi is just, uh, he just scares everyone. There's better ways. Guess what? For that speech, getting eaten up like a gazelle is an understatement. This is not to scare you. This is simply to tell you what the words of the sages are in the name of God, you do what you please with. You do with it what you please with. You don't you want to reject it. It's for you to decide. All we're doing is providing information. Because one of the things that Akadosh Bauhu promised all of us, no one will leave this world without knowing that He is the Creator and this is His Torah. No one. Everyone will know the truth at some point in their life and will have a decision to make. So as someone that wants to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by simply being the messenger, giving you, providing you the truth on a silver platter, you have to do what you want to do with it. But don't go up there thinking that you can use the excuse, I didn't know. Because now you know. Bezrat Hashem, this too will be a chizuk for myself, for all of Klal Yisrael, and for all of those that watch it, whether you're watching it with skepticism, or you're watching it to learn, whether you're watching it as your beginning of your journey to do tshuva, or simply a continuation of it. Be'ezrat Hashem, you'll use this as your chizuk to start taking things more seriously, especially when it comes from the sages, from Tamidei Chachamim, from the world of Torah, because if they wrote it, if they said it, there has to be truth in it. In fact, it's all true, even if you found someone that disagrees with it. 
Thank you very much for learning with me. May HaKadosh Baruch bless each and every single one of you. Again, as a reminder for everyone, tonight is the last day of the Gregorian calendar. Those of you that want to get the additional benefit, aside from the extraordinary and endless mitzvah of helping us, but also have to have getting the extra tax benefit for this year, please donate on the website bhyeshiva.com or the regular websites bezatashem.com or .org and all of the other wonderful websites that the organization has. We have a lot to do, Rabotai. We have a lot to do. We have a lot that we want to do. But we need as much help from the world as we possibly can get because there's simply not enough time to just wait and wait and wait for one day something will happen. It's either now or never. I hope that all of you are as ambitious about the future of Bezat Hashem as we are and Bezat Hashem will all succeed together. And Bezat Hashem will see each other and learn together later this week. asked him what can we do to protect ourselves from Chavre Mashiach he says Torah and Gminut Chasadim even if somebody does a, a nice thing or learns a lot or anything like that it's never compared to bringing one of Hashem's lost kids that's been lost for the last 3,000 years back home one of the beautiful things that we have in our organization is that we have both Torah and Zikri Rabin because we have our Kolels, we have our Avrachim, and we also have our cube that we do around the world. Our lectures reach every corner of the world, Baruch Hashem, in multiple languages, but of course, we always want to do even more. while we have Kiruv work that we've done throughout the whole year, we also have the Torah that we're constantly producing more and more of, and last but not least, the uh, Chesed to feed the poor people in Israel. A very special thank you to all our amazing guests who show real love about this land by taking the time out of their busy schedule and sharing their ups and downs with us, all for the sake of our
ארגון בעזרת השם הולך לחלק מאות סלי מזון בכל רחבי הארץ. One of the big things that we have, aside from this campaign, you probably see this post or something similar to it, is also we published some of the recent results that we have, or at least up to now, of the organization. And one of the reasons why we do this each year is because we want to make sure that our partners, our donors, our Talmidin, know where their money is going. Unlike everybody else that, you know, uh, says a lot, does a lot, we want to show you what these results are. I can tell you from my experience and a little bit of knowledge about the whole Torah world, I don't know of anybody else, uh, any other organization on planet Earth that produces dollar for dollar what we produced over these last few years. This is nothing to be arrogant about. It's simply Siyat Bishmaya HaKadosh Baruch who helped us. We made every sacrifice that we can possibly make in order to, to make it happen. Producing nearly 300 films, publishing 32 books, our own books, giving out 154,000 books for free. Giving out 154,000 books is not a cheap endeavor. Anyone that wants to do such a thing has to be completely committed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to his children, and most importantly, to have bitachon in HaKadosh Baruch Hu and his Torah. We also have fed over 160,000 people over these last several years. Each year during Pesach, the high holidays, throughout the year, we help a lot of people eat, help make sure that they have groceries, food, all types of things. And uh, you guys have seen many of the videos that are uh, that we've produced over the years to actually show you the people that are getting this food. You have here 160,000 people have eaten, nearly 300 Torah films. And then on top of all of it, we have 1.4 million USB CDs and cards that have been giving out for free. All of the work that we've done over the last 10 years on these USBs given out for free. Last but not least, 12,000 video and audio lectures available online in about 14 different languages for the world to watch for free. ארגון בעזרת השם לקח על עצמו את אחת המטרות הקשות ביותר בדור שלנו לתקן עולם במלכות שדי לא להסתפק במשהו אחד לעזור רק לאנשים מסכנים רק לאנשים ניצולי שואה רק לאנשים שלא מכירים את אלוקים רק לאנשים שאין להם כלום בבית אלא לעזור לכלל ישראל בכל מכל ברוך השם, חפץ השם בידינו הצליח למעלה ממיליון יהודים ויהודיות נעזרו על ידי ארגון בעזרת השם. רק תדמיינו לכם איזה עוצמה היה לכל אחד ואחת מהשותפים שזכו להיות כל אחד כפי כוחו ויכולתו, לאיזה תוצאות הצליחו להגיע ולאיזה תוצאות עוד יצליחו. פורים שמח על לראות את השלטים, נעלה עכשיו למעלה, נשמוע קצת את האש, את הלימוד. ברוכים הבאים, אפשר לראות כאן. כולם יושבים לומדים, איזה רעש של תורה, איזה רעש, איזה רעש, והנה יש פה עוד בית מדרש. וגם פה יש, השם הכל עמוס. הדמיון הזה הוא לא דמיון כל כך רחוק כי כמו שהתורה אומרת בפיך ובלבבך לעשותו ככה גם בדבר הזה כל מי שירצה, כל מי שרוצה או רוצה להיות שותפים איתנו, עם הארגון הקדוש והנפלא הזה, שכל כוונתו לשם שמיים, להגדיל תורה ולהאדירה, להרים קרן התורה, לעזור לכל אחד ואחד מעם ישראל, בכל העניינים, כל המישורים, מהילד הכי קטן, שצריך מתן עליו את עד האיש הכי 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 מבוגר, 
שלעולם לא הניח תפילין, ורגע לפני המוות דואגים להניח לו תפילין. אם גם אתם רוצים להיות שותפים בכאלה דברים גדולים, בעשייה של תורה ועבודה בגנים חסדים, ברוך השם, ארגון בעזרת השם, כאן, לצדכם, לשירותכם, יחד עם כלל ישראל. כמעט מיליון וחצי דיסקים, דיסקונקים, שחילקנו, כל הדברים האלה בחינם, יותר מ-12 אלף שיעורים, אז כל הדברים האלה, מתי שבן אדם רואה כמה ההשקעה שלו, אם זה בבתים, מניות, בכל מיני דברים, והוא רואה שהמניה עלתה 10% במקום אחד, ו-1,000% במקום שני, אז הוא מבין איפה להשקיע פעם הבאה. ואותו דבר פה, יש הרבה אנשים שברוך השם צופים את השיעורים שלנו, שיעורים של הרב אפרים, שיעורים של הרב שרביט, ושאר הרבנים בארגון, ועכשיו זה הזמן להיות שותפים בדבר הגדול שאנחנו עושים ברוך השם. an indication of what we can do in the future. So this is the time where we need as much of your help as possible to push yourself more than you typically do. If you typically donate a couple hundred dollars, donate a thousand. If you, uh, if you can afford uh, the uh, uh, $8,000, $15,000, $50,000, whatever you can afford, this is the time to do it because this is going to be the help that we have to help all of these Avachim, to feed these people and perhaps Bezal Hashem one day to get that building that we've been uh, wanting to, uh, to build here in, uh, in the United States to build a community. But the, all of these things require millions of dollars. If not now, then when?